From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. I would read Vietnamese cookbooks that were coming out in the 80s, and I'd be like, that is not the kind of food that my family makes. And why are they using olive oil in that recipe? And why don't they tell the story of Vietnamese refugees in this country? Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, Stories Behind Cookbooks. And you just heard from today's guest, Andrea Nguyen. Andrea is the author of six cookbooks that explore the cuisine of her birthplace, Vietnam. Now, her latest work, Vietnamese Food Any Day, aims to make Vietnamese food more accessible by featuring easy weeknight recipes that build on ingredients you'll find at most grocery stores. This latest cookbook of Andrea's builds on her other works as well, from her first, The Inimitable Into the Vietnamese kitchen to her volumes on both pho and bun mi. We're talking with Andrea today about her cookbooks, about shopping at grocery stores, and playing a little game that we like to call Can You Pho It or Can You Bun Me It? And later in the show, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack. All of that this week on Salt and Spine. So let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Andrea Huynh joined us to talk cookbooks. Grocery shopping is something that really intrigues me because it's not just about mundane. A lot of people who want to cook, they actually hate to grocery shop. And for me, it's an adventure. And it sometimes really bugs my husband because I go up and down every friggin' aisle. (laughs) Me too. You know, and and I've learned to skip like the mops and stuff. (laughs) But I always hit up like the houseware section depending on the market, right? Um and and like even regular American supermarkets that people just think are so like lowbrow. Right. To me are exotic and so interesting. So fascinating. It's one of my favorite things to do whenever I'm traveling to even places I've been before. Like I was just in Kansas City visiting relatives, but just to go through a grocery store, I don't know, it feels like you can really learn a lot about a place and the people. Completely. Um, I was down in the South last summer and we were on like a civil rights tour through um, Georgia and Alabama. Uh And I said, okay, everywhere we go, every single city we hit, I got to hit a supermarket. Yeah. I want to see what's going on. So in Montgomery, Alabama, we went to a Piggly Wiggly and a Publix. And Piggly Wiggly, you know, for people out there, it's like they claim to be America's first supermarket, but Hmm. technically they're not because they started out as like a dry goods store. Okay. So like the first supermarket was actually in LA where, you know, people like cars and and air conditioning (laughs) and have a lot of of space. But anyway, so we go to the Piggly Wiggly and I'm looking around and I see a lot of smoked turkey parts, Uh which is like great because there's a fabulous um, smoked turkey pho recipe in the book. And I wrote that um, recipe for Vietnamese food any day thinking that people just like pick up one smoked turkey part like a thigh and you've got a really great pho at your fingertips fast. And down in the South, there are a lot of smoked turkey parts. Yeah. And you probably (laughs) saw that when you were down there recently. So then I was looking around. I thought, okay, um, there wasn't much of an Asian ingredient section. So I went looking for shiracha. Okay. I didn't see any. Really? In the hot sauce section. And we were standing there and we were the only like non-African American people in the market. And this guy comes up and he says, what you looking for? And I said, shiracha. And he goes, shi what? (laughs) 
He didn't know what it was. Yeah. And I said, it's like this Asian hot sauce. It's in this big squirt bottle. And he said to me, right there is where all our hot sauces are. And that's all we got. And they had none of it. So, you know, a lot of times we assume things right. and the food world, but in reality, it's not that pervasive. Yeah. But drive three miles away from that Piggly Wiggly and there is a Publix where they have shiracha and fish sauce. So, you know, that underscores the need to like shop in different places and to be a smart grocery shopper. I think sometimes in food, we've been acculturated to think that we have to like work really hard to get specialty ingredients. Right. And with this book, I really wanted to bust through that myth and just say, it is right there and you can make it anytime, any day you want. You just got to look around and mind your grocery stores. Yeah. I love that. I want to go back to, I guess, back to the beginning. So you were born in Vietnam. On this day, years ago. <laughs> Happy birthday. Thank you. And then you came here to the United States when you were seven, six, seven? Actually, I was six. Six years old. Okay. And one of the things that you've written about many places that I find so fascinating is that one of the things your mother brought with her was this book, this book that she had of handwritten recipes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? There's this a beautiful picture of it, actually, in your first book. Right. And so it's a little um, orange paperback notebook. And it was a very common notebook and it had like this kind of like this Greek mythical figure kind of Zeus like on top of this globe and it yeah. says Olympic. And, um, on the front of it, it, it basically says like mom's, you know, recipe book in Vietnamese. And she would make my sisters write down, she was tell them, you're practicing your penmanship. And they right. would have to copy very neatly <laughs> sure. certain recipes that she found to be interesting in like a local newspaper, or sometimes she would dictate to them and sometimes things would be in her own um, handwriting. And when we came, we were refugees um, fleeing Vietnam's political turmoil right. in April of 1975. And we were very lucky to be able to leave one week before the fall of Saigon. And we got, we're very lucky to be able to leave by plane. And, you know, I jokingly call that like, I mean, that was like the friggin' business class ticket out of that country <laughs> during a, a situation that was extremely stressful. Yeah. Uh, because everyone in Saigon at that time knew something was coming down, but you just didn't know what was going to happen and what your future held. And so we were a family of seven, my parents with five kids, and we only had two small suitcases. So in my mother's handbag, she had her little survival kit. She had jewelry. She had photographs. She had bottled water. She had instant noodle packages. Uh -huh. And she had this little notebook because she thought, one thing I can do when I come to America is to make food. And maybe I can have a restaurant here, too, for Vietnamese people who are going to come to America. The restaurant didn't happen, but she had a family of seven people to feed. And so she kind of like commandeered us as we were kids to uh -huh. be her little kitchen, you know, brigade. And we didn't live near a Vietnamese enclave. We didn't live near a Chinatown. So she made all of this food herself. But what she found here was just like, you know, there, there, there was no fish sauce back in 1975. Sure. She saw plenty of white granulated sugar that was refined. So it made making Vietnamese caramel sauce, which is a cornerstone of the Vietnamese kitchen for making these braises and similar dishes called ka, which are savory, sweet and flavored with fish sauce and black pepper and chilies and stuff. And you can braise like pork belly and right. chicken and fish and all that. So she was like, woohoo, I can do this with no problem. Yeah. But she also found butter. 
and white flour, which were like such luxe ingredients in Vietnam. So, hey, she was like practicing making her own puff pastry. Right. <laughs> because in Vietnam, she was like doing it with like margarine and just like so-so flour. Yeah. And in the tropical heat, which was like, as you can imagine, so hard because anyone who's made puff pastry knows you have to have a cold environment. Sure. And so <laughs> there she was in Southern California. She's like, ha you know, this is like really cool. And, you know, and that's part of the crux of like my whole trajectory. And in, into the Vietnamese kitchen, there was a lot of like project cooking, but I wanted to detail that because that was the foundation for how I grew up. And that orange notebook was part of that journey. Yeah. And you talk about how your mom doesn't cook the way she used to anymore, and you've made recipes in Vietnamese any day really just accessible to people who might not have a history of cooking Vietnamese food and can just access things from the grocery store. But at the same time, you talk a lot about the role that your parents played in really instilling Vietnamese culinary culture and tradition into your life as you were growing up here in the United States. What sort of impact did that have on you? And did that was that a thing that really sort of pushed you to want to work in food? You know, I so I'm like the youngest of five. Okay. And um, I like to eat. So like, <laughs> I was chubby. And that was a rarity in Vietnam, <laughs> you know, developing country. Sure. Back then, I mean, now that you see people are healthier, and thank God, I don't feel so awkward when I go back because <laughs> I'm very well fed. But I was well fed back there, and I always loved to eat. And my mom would always make sure that we were healthy uh-huh. and well fed, which from a nutritional standpoint, right? Really, as a parent back then. But once we got here, my parents have always been extremely curious about food okay. and really into food and cooking, and they instilled that in us because we were no longer in Vietnam. The only way that they could get us to consistently know who we are and establish our roots. And I say that consistently, so on a daily basis, was through eating and cooking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We also had to speak Vietnamese when we were home. Okay. I mean, now (laughs) it's kind of funny because for anyone out there who was born into a different culture, you may experience this, but as I grew older, my language skills, my native Vietnamese language skills became better. And certain words would just come out of my mouth. And I didn't know where they came from. But they're embedded in my subconscious somewhere. So sometimes, you know, I'm talking to my parents, and I'll just use some word. I'll say, where did that come from? (laughs) (laughs) Or when I'm in Vietnam, and I can, you know, I find myself being able to better communicate. And part of that is really having had my parents just say, nope, you're going to eat rice every day. And we were joking around with my mom. We were like, why are we having like rice with spaghetti? You know, or why do we have to eat these gun, these quick soups, even when it's like really hot? And she'd say, we're Vietnamese. I eat rice every day. And you eat soup to cool down. You know, all these things where she would just kind of like beat us. (laughs) And we were just like smart asses. But that was really part of them saying, we're not going to lose. We're not going to allow you to lose who you are. Right. And then you sort of took a path that wasn't direct to food. So I I love this quote in your book. You say, in your first book, actually, you say, I wanted to write a Vietnamese cookbook since I was 10 years old. So you you had that inkling very early on, that food inkling, but then you went to college and pursued a career in banking and some other professions before ultimately coming back to food. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you and how you ended up becoming the food writer you are today? Sure. So, um, we couldn't afford for me to read, you know, regular children's books like Beverly Cleary. If you're <laughs> of a certain age, you like, no, you know, sure. like, like the, the, 
the bookmobile would come and the kids uh-huh. would buy all these books. And my parents are like, we can't afford that. You go to the library. So we live near a public library or I go to the library and I would start checking out cookbooks. Okay. Because my sisters were really into food too. And we were like, aha, you know, we can make all this like Western food now. Yeah. And my mom was like, she'd get on the phone and on the weekends and talk to her girlfriends and other refugees who come and they'd be like swapping interesting stories about how to make stuff. So I, I really started reading cookbooks and trying to learn about American and Western food culture. And these books had no pictures. Right. And so I would read the glossary and I'd be like, what's rosemary? What is that? And I didn't really take, I knew I read about it, but I didn't know what rosemary, sage or thyme was until much like when I was in high school and college. Yeah. And, and even then I only knew it as in dry form until I was, was living really on my own with my boyfriend and then now husband. And I was like, this is fresh rosemary and this is what it looks like. But I had read about it and I would read the glossaries because I was like, what is this foundation, you know, and and cookbooks. And if my family let me experiment on them, I would. (laughs) And and it was very kind of them because there were a lot of mistakes. So when you're a first generation immigrant, a career in food just seems bizarre because it's unstable and it's low paying. And my parents said, we didn't send you to college to um, be a cook. And, you know, we had cooks hired housekeepers when we were growing up. We were very fortunate. And um, and that's not what you do. That's yeah. not a profession. You like know. My mom would say, I knew how to cook. And she took cooking classes, but she wasn't like the cook for the household. And people who were professional cooks were considered like laborers. And so I thought, all right, well, I'm good with numbers, you know, did very well in AP calculus and all the (laughs) sciences. Okay. Typical like Asian overachiever type. (laughs) So I thought, okay, I'm going to study banking because like my sisters and my brothers, you know, they were, and my brother, they were like pharmacists and lawyers and doctors and all of like the wonderful things that Asian people are supposed to do. And I was like, I'm going to go into banking because then like I can know how to make money. And my first job out of college was as a federal bank examiner. And so I audited banking institutions. Okay. I was off. I was terrible <laughs> at accounting and debits credits. And all this time I was still reading and cooking. Reading the cookbooks? Side. Reading cookbooks. I was buying them uh-huh. and I was, you know, uh, buying discounted books and I was cooking, but I just didn't think that I could ever have a career in it. And I would read Vietnamese cookbooks that were coming out in the 80s. And I'd be like, that is not the kind of food that my family makes. And why are they using olive oil in that recipe? And why don't they tell the story of Vietnamese refugees in this country? Right. And it's not exotic. It's not about being in Vietnam. And I was like, why are they doing this? Why don't they tell the stories of people like my family and other families we know? And then I was like, okay, whatever. And <laughs> so I go my banking thing and I really sucked at that job. I hated it so much. I, yeah. I'm just not a nine to five person. Right. Clocking in with timesheets and everything. And I got a fellowship to study abroad with Rhodey Foundation. I, and I ended up in Hong Kong for a year okay. studying Mandarin Chinese and got to hang out for a year, which was the first year that I'd never had to work while I was in school because I worked since I was in high school and I worked throughout college. Right. And then I was like, I'm going to go home and I'm going to like 
switch careers and become a cook. And I got a $5 an hour job when I came back to the United States in Los Angeles at City Restaurant for Mary Sue Milliken and Susan Finnegar. Okay. I got that job answering a help wanted ad in the Los Angeles Times. Okay. And Susan hired me. Yeah. And at that time, they were like hiring and inspiring women who had no prior background in food to work in their kitchens. And it was so wonderful. And I was good, but it was so not glamorous. And I quit after a number of months and I still like maintain contact, sporadic contact with them. But I was like, all right, I can still go home and cook and I like it, but I don't want to cook in a kitchen. Okay. So you realized that the unglamorous part was the restaurant kitchen. You didn't like that, but it didn't turn you off from food. No, I would still go home because I worked like the late shift. So I would work like three to 11 on my days off. I would cook. And in the hours before I had to show up for work, I would cook. But after I left that job, I smelled like the kitchen for like a week because it's still in your pores. Yes. Yeah. You cut your hand. You got to like bandage it up. You got to keep working. And also like, you know, customers would come in and they'd be like, I want a Caesar salad naked. And you're like, then that's just romaine lettuce (laughs) on a plate with some croutons. Right. (laughs) Customer's always right. (laughs) Customer's always right. (laughs) And these were like, you know, Hollywood celebrities. (laughs) I was like, no wonder she's so skinny. (laughs) (laughs) So, and, and, but I want to do something in food and I just didn't know it. And I just thought, you know what? People like me, they don't get into food. And I went back to work at the University of Southern California in LA, USC, where I'd earned my undergraduate. This is after the restaurant? Yeah. Okay. And I met this guy who was like, his family owned this Korean American publication. And he's like, you can write restaurant reviews for us and I'll pay you, I don't know, it's like 50 bucks or something. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so I started doing restaurant reviews and, and then I started thinking I wanted to write a cookbook because that was the thing I knew. And people told me that I couldn't write a cookbook because I wasn't on food television. This was like in the late nineties after I left USC and I'd earned a master's degree in communication management and Sever magazine started at, at that point. And I wrote a pitch letter and sent it to regular snail mail. Right. And, um, then I was on the phone with Coleman Andrews all of a sudden, whom I had read his work while I was like in college. He gave me an in and gave me my first, you know, real national article to write. And even though I had this book proposal I had put together and I did everything that I was told to do to like read, you know, I went to the library to check out books and how to write book proposals. The answer was always, you're not on food television. I can't sell this idea, which is like really great. So what, what shifted? What changed? My husband and I got married and we moved to Northern California from Southern California. And I was then doing consulting in communication management. And for a while I brought up, um, clients from Southern California. But then once those clients dried up, I had no business left. We were living in the countryside. I was churning my own butter and making my own lard and gardening. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what do I do now? I can't get arrested. And I'm living in the country right. know, outside of Santa Cruz. And I had bizarrely picked up HTML coding skills okay. while I was at USC. Yeah. Like these students like said, Hey, you know, we got this new thing. It's called HTML on the, the internet. You want to learn how to do it? And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so I learned how to build a website and I started building Viet World Kitchen. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Oh, I'll just, you know, if I can't write a cookbook, then I'm just going to have like this thing online that would be a hub for information. 
So I built that site and from scratch and put out my information and it was really fun. And one day I got a freelance gig at UC Santa Cruz. And through that situation, I met the owner of 10 Speed Press. Okay. And by then I had re- read so many cookbooks, I knew exactly what 10 Speed Press was. Right. And um, it's it's a publisher for listeners out there that specializes in cookbooks and in particular Asian cookbooks. And so I was like, I've got this book proposal. Yeah. <laughs> Where Are you interested? And he was kind of like, you know, that's kind of nice. If you write it, I'll publish it. And I said, no, I want it to be juried. Because I knew by that, because agents had told me that, you know, they wouldn't represent me. And I'm like, well, right. screw the agents. Yeah. I've got like the owner of this publishing house. Yeah. And so I, I gave him the um, book proposal. Um, and at that time, the book Into the Vietnamese Kitchen was not that title. It was called Pass the Fish Sauce. Really? Yeah. That was the working title? That was the working title because I thought everybody's ready for fish sauce. Yeah. Uh-huh. And back- you and you wanted that to be the title. I was like, this yeah. is called Pass the Fish Sauce. Yeah. Because what else do we do <laughs> at the Vietnamese table but say Pass the Fish Sauce? <laughs> I love the name. Well, now you do. Now it, I but, do, yeah. yeah. But back but then I, it was like, oh, sure. that's just kind of off-putting. So anyway, so, <laughs> so title aside, right. they looked at it and they're like, we want it. And they put their best editor on the project. His name is Aaron Wainer. And now he runs 10 Speeds Press and other imprints for Random House. And I got like the best treatment. I was copy edited by a woman whose work that I read when I was like in junior high. And I was like, oh my God, it's her. And she's going to kick my ass. And this is great because <laughs> I'm going to become a better writer. Right. And all I really thought that I would do was just like write one cookbook but 10 Speed Press said, well, you're kind of good at this. And so we want you to keep going. So it's happily unfolded. And I'm an extremely lucky person to be able to write what I really love to write about. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Andrea Wynn. But first, a special promotion for Salt and Spine listeners. Now, if you're a regular listener, you likely know that we record all of our episodes at the Civic Kitchen. The Civic Kitchen is the recreational cooking school for home cooks located in San Francisco's Mission District. And now, through the end of April, Salt and Spine listeners can get 25% off your first or next class at the Civic Kitchen. Just use the promo code SALT25. And you won't want to miss upcoming classes and events at the Civic Kitchen featuring some cookbook authors as well. Well, check those out on their website. All you have to do is head to civickitchensf.com. Find the cooking class that's perfect for you and save 25%. Remember to use the code SALT25, that's S-A-L-T-2-5, when checking out, and happy cooking. And now back to our conversation with Andrea Huynh. Into the Vietnamese Kitchen was the first full-color, comprehensive cookbook on Vietnamese cooking in English. Correct. What was it like to take on a project like that? I mean, obviously, you have so much experience coming to this, but to represent an entire cuisine and to become sort of a first in that way, was there a pressure there that you felt to do it right? I was in my mid to late 30s. Okay. And by then, I was just like, what the hell? How many recipes do you want? 175? No problem. Yeah. (laughs) And I think naivete is part of it. But also, I was like, I can come up with that. I always think about books that I want to use. Okay. I think that authors should always make books that they want to use. You know, you may think like, oh, I'm going to do, you know, down and dirty, easy diet book or whatever. Whatever. Okay. But even when you do that, you need to have ownership of it because you need to really have it in your gut and your heart and your soul that that's what you want to produce. 
So in terms of representing, it was hard because I wanted to have all the Vietnamese accent marks, those diacritics things, yeah. which was very difficult. Um, the book was published in 2006. And um, so it went to press in 2005. So we were editing things and laying things out. And some of those marks that you see had to be made up and created because the typefaces back then did not have them. Wow. So like some of the people that I ended up working in the future, like, oh, yeah, I remember we had to, I, I made those, I coded those for you. And all the spelling, um, because I'm like the only native Vietnamese speaker and reader on that project. So like my parents proofread things. Okay. And I was really scared. <laughs> and so I read that book through so i read forward and i read backwards okay and i read it aloud the entire book to proofread it and edit it several times so when and it's you, a lot large book it's a large it's, book i don't know I how many younger. pages i was younger three, 300 something pages <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah but i was like i would read it to just make sure it sounded the head the recipe head note sounded good the introduction sounded good and when then i handed it in and they came back they said we want a vietnamese history section so I did a lot of research for that, and that's in there. And um, it's Vietnamese his history vis-a-vis food. And I love that book. And every time I go to it and I use it, I go, oh, my God, so good. And my mom loves it, too, and a lot of other people enjoy using it. That was, you know, your firstborn, you always right. kind of love it extra. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it is an incredible book. And I was just eating at a restaurant in LA and they had like four cookbooks on the shelf. And that was one of them. Wow. Um, it was in LA. I lied. It was Palm Springs. Gadzooks. Just like okay. seeing it, seeing it all over the place and really it has sort of become a, a textbook for many people who want to either learn how to cook via food or to learn more right. <laughs> about the food they're already cooking. Right. Because there's like each chapter introduction tells you something about Vietnamese culture right. and technique. And so I just like poured everything into there. But you know what? There are still more stories to tell. Yeah. So you followed it up with several more cookbooks, right. um, including the Pha Cookbook, which won a James Beard Award, which is super exciting, and the Bun Mi Cookbook, um, which also was very widely praised. What was it like to work on those sort of two cookbooks, which I think for many people have sort of become the iconic dishes of Vietnamese food? The reason the Bun Mi book came up was, well, before Bun Mi, there was dumplings and tofu. Right. I got to write about things that I really love, um, dumplings, one yeah. of them. And then the tofu book was really this thing of where I was like, God damn it, you know, tofu is a good thing. Yeah. It's not evil. Right. And, um, and then I, I circled back to Vietnamese and I was like, how can I get Vietnamese food into people's consciousness in a really easy, small format way? Because really my overarching thing is like, let's push Asian food waste from the margins into the mainstream. And I thought if I can make a small, affordable book on something that's really fun, it's great. So I was like looking at burger cookbooks and there was like a little shiracha cookbook. And I thought, I'm going to write a book about bun meat. And so that's how that came about. And I was like, I just want this little book, price point, you know, less than 20 bucks. You know, it's cute. It's the size of a sandwich. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of like you can put all these fillings and stuff, swap it up. And then after the Bonmi book, I wanted to write Vietnamese food any day. And I wanted to do that grocery store yeah. Vietnamese cookbook. And my publisher said, no, we think you should write a pho cookbook. And I was like, oh, I said everything about pho that I think I could say <laughs> back in Into the Vietnamese Kitchen because there's basically like chicken and beef. And they're like, no, we just feel like you should do this. 
and you go and like simmer on it for a while. So I thought about how I could possibly tell the story of Vietnamese cooking through one dish like that. And I did a lot of research and I realized that no one, that, that pho is very rich in its history. So I spent, oh God, a fair amount of my life researching, like reading in Vietnamese, interviewing people, all of this stuff, um, traveling to Vietnam to put together a history of pho in English that really tells people about what pho means to Vietnamese people, mm-hmm. historically, culturally, politically. Yeah. And, and then- what does it mean? It, it, it means self-determination. It means appropriation of foreign ideas and creating something of your own. Because pho is an amalgamation of like Chinese and French ideas, but it happens on Vietnamese soil. And Vietnamese history has had so much interaction, so much interplay with, with foreign people who've come in and out of this very little country because it has a super long coastline and porous borders. So people people are always like, eh, you know what? That baguette, that's cute. We're going to make it into a Vietnamese sandwich. Yeah. Oh, and the French, oh, you cut up all of our cows? Great. We can't use them for work anymore. We're going to make a noodle soup out of it. And yes, the Chinese started it, but we're going to to like make it Vietnamese. We're going to add fish sauce to it. And so this is a form of cultural appropriation that is done for survival and for empowerment. And that's what pho is about. So I was like, okay, if I don't write this cookbook, then someone else will, and I'll get mad. (laughs) (laughs) And so I, you know, did all this work. I went to Vietnam and I was like talking to people and, and people volunteered all kinds of information. And it was, and I'm just, I I didn't expect a beard award for that book because I just thought who awards a little book about a noodle soup? Yeah. But I think that that noodle soup means so much to people now in America and America has changed so much that, you know, as soon as we sent that book to press, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm done with (laughs) five. I want to, I want to write now this other thing. And my editor was pushing me to do Vietnamese food any day. And so. And it for that this book first started out being titled Elemental Vietnamese because I really wanted to touch the elemental parts. And they're like, if you really want to like get people to make this, you gotta like not make it sound so cerebral. Right. And I was like, all right, Vietnamese food any day because I don't eat Vietnamese food every day. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. And and you canvassed all these grocery stores, and so it's really just made to be accessible for people, whether they're shopping at Trader Joe's or Publix or Piggly Wiggly or wherever you might be. But at the same time, we also have seen grocery stores, as we noted, really evolve to where I know Trader Joe's sells occasionally, has, sometimes has red boat fish sauce, um, which like is crazy to think about happening 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So was this book like sort of perfectly timed then to sort of hit this evolution of grocery stores at the same time that it's becoming easier for people to make these dishes at home? Completely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was just like watching the growth of the supermarket inventories. So like the Asian aisle is just fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, in the past, like people would say to me, Oh, do I have to go to the Asian market to get those ingredients for making fun? I'm like, no, it's available at Whole Foods, at Safeway, wherever. And they wouldn't believe me. So I'm like, I'm going to show it to you. Yeah. I mean, and there are a, a lot of ingredients, you know, the fish sauce and, and there are rice noodles and rice paper and stuff. And I just want people to realize that these ingredients are all within their reach. Yeah. And grocery shopping 
is a skill that is unfortunately really not like well developed <laughs> yeah. among us modern. And because there are over 40,000 grocery items in a supermarket now, and I think it is really difficult even to buy canned tomatoes. Right. It is a real challenge for a lot of people. I love that. I want to ask you about a couple of your other favorite cookbooks or cookbook authors or people who have really influenced you. We know you started reading them from the library when you were 10. And even in your latest book, Vietnamese Any Day, there's a recipe for coconut kissed chicken and chilies, which you noted it was inspired by a recipe for a roasted game bird and sort of the equivalent of joy of cooking for Vietnamese food. Right. That particular work that you cite, that particular recipe. So there was a woman named Mrs. Van Dai who okay. lived in Vietnam and wrote like the first really comprehensive Vietnamese cookbook in the 20th century called Lam Bit Zai, which means like good cooking okay. or how to cook well. Right. And um, there are not that many Vietnamese cookbooks in Vietnam. So my mom, when she came to America, like she and her friends, they would circulate photocopied copies of that book. Someone had brought one copy to the United States, then they photocopied it and they distributed it. Yeah. And then finally, there was like a bootleg copy that was printed in the US. I went back to Vietnam and got copies. Fascinating. Yeah. And, and the recipes were really, they were short. And they were to the point and they expected you to know how to cook, just like the recipes were that were written all over the world. Yeah. This was a very, um, this, this woman, Mrs. Van Dai was a, uh, a poetess, but she was also a very good cook. And so that she had like this roasted game hen recipe in there with like coconut juice. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so great. But you know, I was like, who's going to like, she, you know, I'm going to tell people to buy quail or something. To, you know, and I was like, no, sure. you know, how can I modernize this? <laughs> right. to also spotlight Mrs. Van Dye yeah. to spotlight this cookbook. So, you know, she's like one of my strange heroes. You know, I pick up one of her book and I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, other people I've been influenced by include Irene Kuo, who uh, wrote uh, The Key to Chinese Cooking. Um, that was edited um, by Judith Jones and uh-huh. published by Knopf. She's just like, she coined the term velveting, right? And it's like, and her writing was just so masterful. And when I was writing into the Vietnamese kitchen, there were certain books that I referenced to get a certain style to write a recipe well. Sure. So Irene Kuo was one of them. I also um, looked at Julie Child's writing and also James Beard's writing. Yeah. So I thought, who writes recipes well that are timeless? And then also I referenced Barbara Chops. I would like read Barbara Chops work because she had like this flourish and this fun. You're like, yeah, I just want to get into it, you know, and those are just a handful of people that sure. I admire. But I also admire Julie Sani, who just writes the most amazing books. You know, they're not always filled with pictures, but she's a teacher. So we always like to end with a little game. So I thought we would play a fun game. I think it's a fun game called Can You Fa It or Can You Bun Me It? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I've got these great little cards that I'm going to give you. Okay. There's four stacks. I didn't shuffle these, so feel free to reach into the depths of any of the stacks. But we've got these little ingredient cards here. And I thought it'd be fun if you drew for each round a card from each stack. So we've got some proteins, some vegetables, some flavors, and some secret ingredients. And see if, based on those ingredients, you could make us a pho recipe or a bun mi recipe. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. So, so draw a few and let's see oh, what they come are. On. It's chicken and basil with spinach and sumac. Oh, Ooh. awesome. Okay. So first of all, like Paula Wolfert's on her Twitter handle. She's like, it's got sumac in it. Yes. All you know, so that's like one of her favorite things. So I would, um, for this make bun me. So I would take chicken and I, <laughs> it says the tuna of the land. <laughs> <laughs> and I would use boneless, skinless chicken thigh and okay. I would season it probably, you know, with salt, pepper, a little fish sauce and some sumac and maybe a little garlic and shallot and then, um, grill it. Mm-hmm. And then I would just make my, and then there's basil and spinach. Basil. People always think like, oh God, that's like a pho herb, you know, mm-hmm. but it's really an herb that is very Southern Vietnamese. Okay. And the Southern Vietnamese are going to make a bun mi that's like all crazy and wild. Whereas the Northern <laughs> Vietnamese be like, oh no, I just want like my salt and pepper and pate because they're much more traditional. But so think of this as like this crazy modern Southern Vietnamese bun mi. Okay. So you've got the chicken, you know, got it grilled. And then I would use basil in there um, instead of my cilantro. Uh-huh. And then for the spinach, I would probably like welt that very, very quickly. Unless, unless it's like a baby spinach, then I would like tuck it in there and use it as like some greens, but I would still want some crunch. So I, I'm going to yeah. throw my cucumber in there mm-hmm. and my chilies. I don't know if I need my pickle or not. Yeah. I'm wondering, could you pickle the spinach? No. No. But let's say you threw that in a little tangy dressing. Okay. Right? Yeah. And Get some acid in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can like actually maybe, depending how you cook the chicken, maybe if there are little juices left over from the chicken, because you need to let that rest after you cook it and before you slice it for the sandwich, maybe you mix some of those juices with a little vinegar and then toss the spinach in there even. And then you would have like this kind of dressed spinach salad that you put in. But that's what I would do. Uh, don't sounds- forget the mayo. Yeah, right. <laughs> of course. That sounds delicious. I feel like you got an easy one with that chicken That's and what sumac. I, thought I was like, at first I threw that, uh, I pulled that, and I thought, oh my God, is that a bee? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's kind of, oh, okay. Okay, let's do one more. I feel okay. like you got an easy one. I know. Okay. Oh, oregano. I, I don't like oregano. Really? I'm not a huge oregano. Yeah. I tried growing it one time, and it grows very nicely. Oh, and goat. Okay, so what do we have? We have goat, oregano, carrot, carrot and plankton powder. Oh. Plankton powder. Marine vegetable responsible for half of the Earth's oxygen. Mixes with liquids to bring an intense sea flavor. Oh. Oh. <laughs> it sounds like fish sauce. It sounds like fish <laughs> sauce, my friends. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> so what am, so I can choose banh mi or pho? Mm-hmm. I did bun me. I think bun yeah. me is kind of easy. Okay. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, like you guys have the template for bun me. Like if. So I guess can it fa? Can it fa? Yes. Okay. And surely we're offending someone somewhere. No, you're not. By saying this can fa, right? <laughs> you know what? There are like <laughs> fa restaurants called fa king. There are. There's one you around the corner from my house with that name, actually. So you know what? I'm like, that's all right. Um, <laughs> So what I would do is, well, I mean, like you can make pho broth from goat. I've made it from lamb before. Okay. And so it's just like super gamey. And the great thing about goat or lamb pho is that you can just throw a ton of spices into the broth because that meat is gamey. It can take on big spices. So actually, I think I put probably 25% more spices in the broth. So like when I make pho broth, 
Faux broth is savory sweet. So um, you'll see in the faux cookbook that I call for using an apple. Yeah. Um, or sometimes, you know, if you've got hit it with Chinese yellow rock sugar, that's the default. Apple is for people who don't go to the Asian market. And if you do go to the Asian market and you really love it, use MSG. So, but what you're looking for is that little sweet, natural sweetness. Uh So I would use the carrot. Okay. For Mm -hmm. that. And what the carrot's going to do is it's going to turn the broth a little bit kind of an orangey color, depending how much you use. You can, then the oregano, I'm wondering like if you could use it as a topping, as a garnish with the cilantro, perhaps just right at the end a little bit. So a fresh oregano. A fresh oregano, just a little bit chopped Uh with maybe some ginger. Okay. But, you know, I would like increase the amount of the spices for the goat broth. Use carrot in there um, for sweetness. And then the plankton powder. I'm wondering if you could like do that because it's got a briny, intense sea flavor. Use that along with some salt and then reduce the amount of fish sauce. Yeah. It's going to add that sometimes, and you'll see it in my book, like there are places in the fuck cookbook where I'm like, you can put a little kombu in there because those right. are just glutamates. So yeah. That, I was afraid of the plankton, but that's what I would do. Yeah, I feel like that works. So can we expect like a, a goat pho and sumac chicken banh mi cookbook next? <laughs> yes, after I do the um, Instant Pot Keto Air Fryer <laughs> Weight Watchers cookbook. Yes, can't wait. <laughs> can't wait. <laughs> It'll uh, make millions. <laughs> yeah, it might. Well, this was so fun. Thank you, Andrea. You're very welcome, Brian. Thank you for inviting me. And we're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hello, Brian. I'm doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Andrea Wynn to talk about her latest book, Vietnamese Food Any Day, and I'm hoping you have some info to share with us. Well, sure. Uh, I love Andrea Wynn's books. She's written so many of them. Uh, Into the Vietnamese Kitchen was her first Mm -hmm. that really was this wonderful dive into Vietnamese cuisine that she was actually sort of learning about for the first time. She had moved here when she was very young, uh, left Saigon when it was falling, and so she had gone back, I think, for the first time around 2006 or so, and really embraced that cuisine and that culture. And since then, she's written very specific books about Vietnamese cuisine as well, like right. one on pho, mm-hmm. one on banh mi. And this Vietnamese food any day, she described, she said, you know, I didn't want to call it every day because you shouldn't be eating Vietnamese food every day, unless, I guess, you're in Vietnam. Sure. Um, <laughs> but there's no reason to, you know, to expect her readers to be cooking it every day. Okay. But she wanted to make it for any day. So, you you know, with a small pantry of uh, products that you can have in your in your house, you really don't need to work hard to make a meal that's going to, it doesn't have to be a Sunday meal. It could be any day of the week. Uh, so she makes it really easy. Um, I find that Into the Vietnamese Kitchen is also pretty easy. But one thing that distinguishes this book from her past ones is that she really lets you know in the past ones how to make the noodles for the pho, how to actually make the bread for your banh mi sandwich, things that you're probably not going to do if you're a normal person. (laughs) Um, 
Whereas this book, you really don't have to do that. You can, you know, grab lettuce wraps and put, you know, grilled chicken and put it in it. Right. It doesn't have to be, you know, that much of a project. So I love it for that because it really gets people into cooking Vietnamese food for the first time. And they should. It's wonderful flavors. Yeah. And we've talked at various times about the ways grocery stores and markets and things have changed to carry products that they did not carry 20, 30 years ago. Like Zatar, for (laughs) instance. And I know Andrea was really focused on making this an accessible book so you can go to sort of your Trader Joe's or your Safeway and find most of the ingredients. That's right. Have you seen that sort of as a trend to make some yeah, books I that mean, are more accessible? You know, great, like well, yes. And also I was going to say with the products themselves, um, they've even advanced so that like your basic fish sauce you would mm-hmm. find now at any store. But sure. now there's actually better fish sauces like the Red Boat right. uh, and several others. And in fact, she said that Red Boat uh, is now going to be here in uh, the Bay Area. They've got a manufactory. So oh, okay. yeah, they were just in Vietnam. And um, I was in Saigon with with Andrea a few years ago. Okay. And we met the guy who owns the Red Boat Company. He took us to this fantastic restaurant that was all soft shell crab. Oh, can wow. you imagine an yeah. entire restaurant of that? <laughs> but anyway, yes. So back to your question, you can find those products pretty much in any store now. And so that, that makes it really wonderful. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Anytime. Thank you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There you'll find recipes from Vietnamese Any Day for char siu chicken and cashew sesame brittle. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find out more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks as always to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>